Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 354. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have got a story. Oh, James Morrow, the Iron Shroud. That's what we're playing today. And it's a little, yeah, it's not science fiction. It's a little bit dark, a little bit horror, a little bit almost steampunk-ish. But when it comes to James Morrow, he's honestly one of my favourite writers. Each word is just carefully crafted. And I have a little interview before that as well with James, so I I do hope you will stick around and enjoy this show. I'll give you just a quick bio, and actually we we talk about this story in in the interview that I do, but James Morrow's loopy historical novel, Galapagos Regained will see publication in January 2015. In the spirit of The Last Witchfinder, which chronicled the coming of Enlightenment, this epic dramatised the birth of the evolution worldview. His heroine, Chloe Bathurst, gets a job as Charles Dickens' zookeeper in 1848, well before the publication of On the Origin of Species. Eventually she finds herself in South America heading for the Galapagos Archipelago so she can collect her own evolutionary miragini and thus win the the Great God Contest. 10,000 to the first entrant who can prove or disprove the existence of God. And like I say, I mentioned this story in the interview, or James does, and we just can't wait for it to come out. So over the years, we've played a couple or three stories by James Morrow, and that's when I actually first got introduced to James Morrow and these kind of writing. And we first came out with, oh, ages ago, Lady Witherspoon's Solution. You'll have to go back and find it. Then we played Bigfoot and the Bodavistas, and then the Raft of the Titanic, and... Just that just sealed the deal with me with James Morrow. And I just love his work, man. His work's just so crafted. It's just fantastic. And the ideas, the quirky ideas he's got. And like I say, we've had this story there. And I was just dying to get it up on the air as well. So that's fantastic. I do a little interview now. And then what I'll do is just go straight in to the story, James Morrow's story. So James, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa. You're very welcome, Tony. It's great to return to your uh, your amazing magic vehicle. Uh, well, it looks so much like a couch. Yes. Well, it's it's lovely because you, you've been on Starship so far throughout the years of its kind of conception, you know. And we've got a story going to play now, Iron Shroud. And James, just if you don't mind, give it without giving too much away the, the kind of the secret source of the story. Tell us, you know, how it, it, you came to write Iron Shroud. There was a uh, ghost 
story anthology in the works at uh, the American publisher HarperCollins. I was not invited to participate in the project, uh, which was no problem as far as I'm concerned because I'm not known as a horror writer. I rarely, I rarely deal with the supernatural, at least not the supernatural taken at face value. So it didn't offend me that they, <laughs> they didn't ring me up. Um, but at a certain point in the evolution of Ghosts by Gaslight, that's the, uh, the title of the, of the anthology, at a certain point in its evolution, they wanted to be able to, to pitch it, promote it to the world as a steampunk compendium because the word steampunk had such cachet <laughs> uh, a couple of years ago. And I think it's still a, a going enterprise. But two, three years ago when the book appeared, if you could possibly slap the word steampunk, on an anthology, I think the, the sales would automatically double. double. And they said, well, who, who, do, who, do, who do we know who's kind of loony and loopy enough to write a ghost story that would also have what on first principles might be an incompatible element of, of Victorian science? Um, and Jack Dan and Nick Giever said, I'll bet James Morrow could bring that off. We'll We'll invite him into the book and we'll give him the first slot in the anthology as long as there is simultaneously the supernatural and rationalism. The Iron Shroud tells of a mad scientist who has captured the souls of the deceased in in metal sheaths and what is so horrible about his his project, his obsession, is that he turns them into his servants. He calls them golems. And these, uh, these electroplated specters uh, become his private army. He mistreats them. He, he uh, uh, has absolutely no compassion for them. He is the ultimate demonic deity in their lives and and forces them to make a religion out of out of he himself uh, so there's the usual James Morrow sardonic religious satire going on in the iron shroud i should also add that the title is um an allusion to a very obscure story uh, that apparently influenced Edgar Allan Poe in the composition of The Pit and the Pendulum. I believe it's a, a Russian story. Um, either that or a Russian scholar that I know about identified this. It's a story about someone trapped in a room where the, the walls are coming together to crush him. And, and so Poe took this idea and incorporated it into The Pit and the Pendulum. So with that, uh, thematic energy. I went to town and wrote, and wrote a ghost story. Well, My first, really. Oh, well, that's what James. Where, if we were, and I don't even think there's an answer to this one. Where could we pigeonhole James Morrow? You know, what kind of writer are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I suppose I would prefer to have on my tombstone satirist or perhaps even philosophical novelist, 
rather than science fiction writer. Now, by that remark, I don't mean to demean the genre, but it's uh, kind of an autobiographical fact that I did not enter the field uh, as a fan of it. I uh, did not read a whole lot of science fiction as a kid. Inevitably, um, the icons uh, uh, drew, drew my attention, The War of the Worlds and, and other books by Wells. And I read a few Robert Heinlein juveniles. But um, when I realized that I had in hand an idea for a, a novel that was a, uh, a utopian uh, uh, satire about uh, a pacifist world where no one has ever been robbed or raped or killed. And this morphed into my, my novel, The Wine of Violence. I realized that uh, I was telling a science fiction story. And while the publisher entertained briefly a notion of, of marketing it as mainstream, uh, they made, I think, an astute decision to, to, to label it science fiction. So I regard myself as having in my possession the the amazing toolkit of the SF genre, robots and time travel and the possibility of visiting other planets, all of those ways that we get perspective on our society. But I see myself as much more a, a social critic, a satirist of the, of the contemporary who uses the science fiction toolkit. You know what I love about you, Jim, is is when when you kind of read the, the stories, you you know from a reader's perspective, you get so involved and in depth. You know when you when from your point of view, you know when you're writing these stories, because it it feels like every word has been pondered about to put it in that story. Is it like that for you, or does it just kind of flow from the from the pen or from the, the keyboard, or are you really you know? taking your time and just slotting them special words in to make a story. <laughs> well, I do derive uh, enormous pleasure from the rewriting process. So to answer your question, uh, it's the latter. Uh, it, it is uh, not, not, not anguishing, but it's, ex- <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a major, it's a major time sink. Um, it does not flow from my pen, to use your, your image, Tony, but but that said, uh, I almost feel sorry for writers for whom the rewriting process and the noodling with sen- sentences is not the is not the supreme pleasure. Uh, there, for me, it is it is ecstasy to sit down in a coffee house with uh, the the manuscript of a a work in progress and just noodle with it and try to find. Um, uh, to use Voltaire's famous uh, locution, uh, le mot juste, le mot le plus juste, you know, the most, the most perfect word possible. <laughs> um, coincidentally, The Iron Shroud was written in coffee houses in Prague. Oh, I never go. <laughs> uh, and hence, uh, I, I, the, the Kafka influence and the, the presence of creatures in the story who I call golems. But uh, it happened that I was uh, invited in 2010 to the International Tolstoy Conference at, at Yasnaya Polyona, where I gave a, uh, a paper about, about Tolstoy. My wife and I decided to come back in slow motion. We stopped off in Poland and we stopped off in the Czech Republic. And it was 
it was in Prague that, uh, that I found time to, to sit down and compose the first draft of, of this story. Um, I just reread it, knowing that this interview with you was pending. Uh, so speaking to the issue of language, um, I was pleased with, with a number of, of the metaphors that I came up with, and I, and I do struggle you don't, you don't want to change anything, do you? Yeah, do, do struggle. <laughs> when you <laughs> to, reread to, it. Uh, to, to make it as, as musical and poetic as possible. There are moments where I said, oh, my God, this is overwriting. Um, I, 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 if I ever publish the story, I will strike a, a couple of the, of the phrases that, uh, that border on, on the purple. But um, I, I was pretty pleased with it, I must say. Jim, can you can you leave, do you know when the story's finished or is it never finished? Um, well, that's a that's a good question. Um, I know there are um, playwrights who never regard the printed text of the of the play uh, as as the last word, and they will often um, uh, rewrite it every time they hear that there's a that there's a um, New production in the works, and and I and I like to think that in the uh, the age of digitalization, that works are never completely settled. They're they're always in a state of becoming. I can't imagine reprinting the Iron Shroud or any of my other stories um, for for a, a James Morrow collection without noodling with it just a little bit more you know they're uh they're always in a state of in a state of flux wouldn't want to noodle with it to the degree that i was sort of cheating the readers who who had, who had uh encountered an earlier draft and and presumably taken some pleasure in it that wouldn't be fair to them <laughs> uh you know like now you have to buy the director's cut of, of yeah. your favorite movie because it's supposedly even better than, than what you read. Wouldn't want to play that game. But I'm sufficiently neurotic. And as I say, it's, it's ec- ecstasy for me to, to, to just play around with sentences. Have you ever, um, Jim, have you yeah. ever just took it too far? You know, with your, in your kind of words, noodling, and you went, I've lost this. It's when it's all went pear-shaped. Um, I suppose there is such a thing as fixing a story that isn't really broken and uh, <laughs> uh, but I have to say and I don't know if this is a, a vain comment or a modest comment I don't think um, I've ever uh, over rewritten a story I think I've I, I can't say oh I wish I had gone back and and could restore some something uh, uh, something that I'd composed that was simpler, less Baroque, you know. Give me the grand manner every time. <laughs> Jim, can, do you mind if we, if we go back in history then? Let's talk about, if you don't mind, your childhood. I'm just, I'm fascinated where you grew up and, you know, what your childhood was like. Um, well, I, uh, I'm often asked whether I had a, a strict religious upbringing and that, and that possibly the... Uh, the, the atheist argument, the, the, the rationalist argument that's running through all of my, all of my fiction maybe traces to my having been assaulted by a nun with a ruler or some equivalent uh, trauma at the hands of institutionalized religion. No, I, um, 
I uh, grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, born into a household of uh, a mom and a dad, no siblings, I'm an only child. My parents had a, a kind of nominal belief in God or just a sort of a perfunctory notion that there's, there's a mystery to the universe and with any luck, uh, <laughs> one, one is, uh, acquires a ticket to heaven um, uh, that one eventually then cashes in. But, uh, but um, they decided – I think they had a kind of inoculation theory – uh, with with their child that if I were given a small dose of religion, um, that would protect me from coming down with a really bad case of religion. So <laughs> they they took me to a very bland Presbyterian church in the next town over, the first Presbyterian church of Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. Um, and I would say uh, it worked. I didn't ever walk into the house and 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 say mom and dad i've decided to become a monk you know mom and dad uh you know i jesus is now the center of my life and i intend to take holy orders uh i came away with um a minimalist barely functional nebulous notion of of uh, a supreme being and this evaporated uh, when I began to read writers like Kafka um, and Camus and Voltaire, the great skeptics. I was introduced to all of them in one amazing world literature class that I had in uh, tenth tenth grade at Abington Senior High School, uh, supervised by an amazing instructor named James Giordano. And I never looked back after that. That was sort of my inverse road to Damascus, uh, once I discovered that there was such a thing as skepticism, such a thing as authors who rejected the received wisdom of their time and of their place and who um, in, invited us to, uh, to revel in the mystery of it all and not, not settle for the answers of politicians and clerics. Sign me up, I said. I want to do this myself one day. I want to, in my own uh, modest way, follow in the footsteps of Camus and Voltaire and, and these, uh, these French atheists. Was, was school a happy place for you then, Jim? Um, well, I, I guess think, thinking over our, our theme of my, uh, my obsession – with detail, I probably made myself unnecessarily unhappy uh, trying to get good grades in all of my classes. So, so I, I managed to overwork myself beyond what my teachers ex- expected of me. Um, and, uh, you know, you know I, I'm a great defender of public schools, though. I, I think they're one of the best ideas people ever had. The Republican Party at the moment is doing everything it can think of to destroy public education in this country, uh, underfunding the public schools, uh, promoting private religious schools, providing parents with vouchers to send their kids to places like this. So that makes me very sad. If it had not been for the cosmopolitan quality of my high school, for that amazing world literature class, I would not be the person I am today. Uh, 
James Giordano just opened up the minds of, of all of his students. Uh, so in that regard, I was a happy student discovering these universes that I never knew existed, you know, that the universe that you would never get a clue about in a Presbyterian Sunday school or from watching television or from just the, the general, the general discourse in the, in the popular culture. When did you discover then, Jim, about, you know, trying to get yourself published, you know, to maybe, maybe make a profession of it? Well, I did not come out of, um, high school saying, uh, I'll bet it's really easy to write novels for a living. That's what I'll do. I didn't even come out of college with any definite notions of trying to become a man of letters. Uh, I became a classroom teacher. I had, I had, I had um, majored in, in fiction writing at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. But in those days, we're talking about casting our minds back to, to 1969. Uh, in those days, there was very little sense at universities that, that fiction making was teachable, that there were, that there were skills both uh, uh, aesthetic and political that one could impart to a nascent writer that would enable him or her to have a career. It was nothing more than sitting around with a professor and doing a workshop, critiquing each other's manuscripts. Um, but there was no rigorous uh, uh, or systematic instruction in point of view or, or sentence rhythm or all of the, all of the I, I think, what, what are in fact the teachable skills, the the, the craft of, of writing, the sorts of things you could learn several years later, maybe by going to, uh, to one of the workshops, such as most conspicuously Iowa. Um, but one day, one day, um, I just found myself in possession of the idea I mentioned earlier, my novel, The Wine of Violence, a pacifist utopia. Uh, and a, a, a plot centered on the mystery of how in the world did such a, a blessed state descend upon these people living on another planet. Turns out that they, um, uh, they indulge in catharsis. They, they watch television all day, um, and they can directly hook themselves up to their television receivers and control the content and, and indulge in uh, the most extremely violent fantasies uh, that come out of their own lives. If the boss has been mean to you during the day, you, you, you can switch on your TV and see yourself decapitating your boss. And, and uh, this has such a cathartic effect that you feel no impulse to commit that crime in, in real life. Uh, so anyway, I was very taken with this idea. Managed to find a literary agent, managed to find a good hardcover publisher in New York, and then I immediately became addicted to, to fiction making. And I was fulfilling the contract that I'd written with myself back in back in 10th grade, back in the year 1963, I guess it was, to try to write novels of ideas, to try to use that 
satiric idiom I'd learned uh, from from Voltaire and 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 uh, Mark Twain and uh, and 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 create my own my own novels with that voice. And are you still, Jim, as excited what you are now? You know, were then that you are now? You know, because I know you've got a new book out, The Madonna and the Starship. Is it still? Does it still get you this writing? <laughs> um, I love it more than ever, and in that regard, I, I consider myself one of the luckiest people I know. Um, you know, I'm not uh, a celebrity. I'm not famous. Uh, I don't have sales um, in 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 the uh, in in the bestseller category, um, but. Uh, I couldn't be more satisfied. The Madonna and the Starship continues this <clears throat> obsession of mine with uh, uh, with God and the problems of playing God. As your listeners will discover, uh, the theme of the Iron Shroud is um, uh, the 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 horror of of someone who presumes to play God, someone who um, who takes these ghosts. These these electroplated spirits turns them into golems who who uh, who will do his bidding, um, and uh, I've got uh, a novel on the runway. It's called um, it's called uh, Galapagos Regained about the coming of the Darwinian worldview. Um, and you know, I sent you a. I sent you a paragraph about it summarizing right, the plot, yes. so you can you can read that as part of uh, as your introduction to me, I guess. So is that Jim? Is that one kind of when you see on the runway? Is that one finished, ready to, to be at the printers, or are we still waiting? Will it be a, f- a few more tweaks and turns on on the drafts? Uh, it's it's finished, and it will appear in January of next year from St. Martin's Press. Here in the U.S., and we don't yet have a U.K. publisher, but presumably <laughs> uh, someone will line up uh, in your country if, if the book gets uh, good reviews here in the U.S. So, Jim, what – is there anything – you know, like the, the short stories, because that's, that's our kind of bread and butter, the sh- short stories – are they like nice little sweet treats for you to kind of slot in between your novels or – are they just as important, you know, for you writing the, the short fiction? Well, I'd have to say, in all honesty, my heart is in the novel. I've always been attracted to uh, to epic, I guess, in in literature and in cinema. So, to a large degree, um, the the short stories provide me with a respite between the. <laughs> The, the heavy lifting that each <laughs> novel seems to to entail the philosophical heavy heavy lifting of a, a novel such as the last witchfinder where I had to to learn everything I could about uh, Isaac Newton and the emergence of mechanical science and how that presented a challenge to the um, to the Renaissance demon driven world picture. Uh, that occasioned ultimately the witch courts, um, and and in the case of uh, the Galapagos regained 
months had having to spend uh, many many hours researching uh, Victorian England and um, and uh, South America uh, during Darwin's time. The plot involves a kind of Jules Verne esque adventure. My heroine, who is Darwin's zookeeper, hired to tend the uh, the uh, menagerie he brought back from the Galapagos archipelago, which he didn't really do, by the way. That's my poetic license talking. But she's hired to to uh, tend his menagerie and has reason to recapitulate that same menagerie, to gather together the same specimens by um, betaking herself to Galapagos. She has to do that by means of by way of South America, so I had to research what that continent was like circa 1848, found out about the rubber trade and the destructive impact that had on the native population. She finally does get to Galapagos, and by rounding up all these specimens that illustrate the theory of natural selection, she hopes she will win the great God contest back in in Oxford, 10,000 pounds to the first scholar or sage or philosopher or theologian who can prove or disprove the existence of God. Heavy stuff. So, yes, the short stories are sort of a treat for me, uh, a way to relax. Uh, Jim, I'm looking so looking forward to that one coming out as well. Let's hope you get a UK publisher sorted out as soon as possible for that one. <laughs> Thank you. I hope so. Jim, it's um, it's been honestly, it's been lovely because I know you've got to shoot off now and yeah, do some better. do some babysitting there for the the, the grandkids. Uh. Yeah, yeah, I have twin <laughs> grandsons and uh, <laughs> they're demanding my attention right now. But this has been great. Let's do it again. Oh soon, yes, right? definitely. Yeah, I mean, hopefully when like you see if when your Madonna and the Starship, not that one, the, the one that's coming out on the runway. Hopefully, when that comes out, you know, we'll try and get you back on, and you know, it'll be lovely to have a chat, see how that's going. Absolutely. Looking forward. Jim, thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Iron Shroud by James Morrow Jonathan Hobright cannot discourse upon the formic thoughts that flicker through the minds of ants and he is similarly ignorant concerning the psyches of locusts, toads, moles, apes, and bishops. But he can tell you what it's like to be in hell. The abyss has become his fixed abode. Perdition is now his permanent address. Although Jonathan's eyes deliver only muddy and monochromatic images, his ears have acquired an uncommon acuity. Encapsulated head to toe in damnation's carapace, he can hear the throbbing heart of a nearby rat, the caw of approximate raven, the hiss of an immediate snake. Not only is the abyss acoustically opulent, it is temporarily egalitarian. Here, every second is commensurate with a minute, every minute with an hour, every hour with an eon. Has he been immured for a week, a month, a year? Is he reciting to himself the tenth successive account of his incarceration? The hundredth, the thousandth? Listen carefully, Jonathan Hobright. 
attend to every word emerging from the gossamer gates of your phantom mouth. Perhaps on this retelling, you will discover some reason not to abandon hope. Even in hell, stranger things have happened. It is at the funeral of his mentor and friend, the illustrious Alistair Walmoth, that Jonathan meets the woman whose impeccable intentions are to become the paving stones on his road to perdition. By the terms of Dr. Walmoth's last will and testament, the service is churchless and austere. A graveside gathering in St. Sepulchre's Cemetery, Oxford, not so very far from Wadham College, where Walmoth wrought most of his scientific breakthroughs. Per the dead man's prescription, the party is limited to his one true protege, Jonathan, plus his valet, his beloved but dull-witted sister, his three most promising apprentices, and the right reverend Mr. Torrance. As the vicar mutters the incantation by which an Englishman once again becomes synonymous with ashes and dust, the mourners contemplate the corpse. Dr. Walmoth's earthly remains lie within an open coffin suspended above the grave, its oblong form casting a jagged shadow across the cavity, like the gnomon on an immense sundial. The inscription on the stone is singularly spare. A. F. Walmoth, 1803-1881 To assert that Alistair Walmoth was a latter-day Prometheus would not, on Jonathan's view, distort the truth. Just as the mythic titan stole fire from the gods, so did Walmoth appropriate from nature some of her most obscure principles, transforming them into his own private science, the nascent sphere of knowledge he called vibratology. This new field was for its discoverer a fundamentally esoteric realm, to be explored in a manner reminiscent of the ancient Pythagoreans practising their cultish geometry. Of course, when the outside world realised that Walmoth's quest had yielded a practical invention, a tuning fork capable of cracking the thickest crystal and pulverising the strongest metal, the British Society of Engineers urged him to patent the device and establish a corporation dedicated to its commercial exploitation. One particularly aggressive BSE member, a demolitions expert named Cardigan, wanted to market the Walmoth resonator as an earthquake in a satchel case, a miraculous implement auguring a day when the dredging of canals, the blasting of mines, the shattering of battlements, and the moving of mountains will be accomplished with the wave of a wand. To Dr. Walmoth's eternal credit, or so Jonathan constructed the matter, he resisted all such blandishments. Until the day he died, Walmoth forbade his disciples to discuss the resonator in any but the most opaque mathematical terms, confining the conversation to quarterlies concerned solely with theoretical harmonics. The technical periodicals, meanwhile, remained as bereft of articles about the tuning fork as they did of lyric poetry. Contrary to Walmoth's wishes, a ninth mourner has appeared at the service, a parchment-skinned crone in a black-hooded mantle. Her features, Jonathan notes, partake as much of the geological as the anatomical. Her brow is a crag, her nose a promontory, her lower lip a protuberant shelf of rock. With impassive eyes she watches while the sexton, 
a nimble scarecrow named Foot, leans over the open coffin and, in accordance with the deceased genius's desires, lays a resonator on the frozen bosom, wrapping the stiff fingers around the shank, so that in death Dr. Walmoth assumes the demeanour of a sacristan clutching a broom-sized crucifix. An instant later the sexton's assistants, the blockish garber and the scrawny Osmond, set the lid on the coffin and nail it in place. Foot works the windlass, lowering Walmoth to his final resting place. Taking up their spades, Garber and Osmond return the dirt whence it came, the clod striking the coffin lid with percussive thumps, even as the crone approaches Jonathan. Dr. Hobright, I presume? She says in a viscous German accent. Vibratologist extraordinaire? Not nearly so extraordinaire as Alistair Walmoth. Reaching into her canvas sack, the crone produces the January, April and July issues of Oscillation Dynamics for 1879. But you published articles in all these, yeah? It was a good year for me, Jonathan replies, nodding. No fewer than five of my projects came to fruition. But 1881 will be even better. The crone's voice suggests a corroded piccolo played by a consumptive. Before the month is out, you will bring peace and freedom to a myriad unjustly imprisoned souls. From her sack, she withdraws a leather-bound volume inscribed with the words Journal of Baron Gustav Nachstein. I am Countess Helga Nachstein. Thirty years ago I gave birth to the author of this confession, my beloved Gustav, destined for an untimely end, more untimely even than the fate of his father, killed in a duel when Gustav was only ten. My heart goes out to you, Jonathan says. The Countess sighs extravagantly, doubling the furrows of her crenellated brow. The sins of the sons are visited on the mothers. Please believe me when I say that Gustav Nachstein was as brilliant a scientist as your Dr. Volmeth. Alas, his investigations took him to a dark place, and in consequence many innocent beings have spent the past eleven years locked in an earthly purgatory. Just when I'd begun to despair of their liberation, I happened upon my son's collection of scientific periodicals. The fact that the inventor of the Volmeth Resonator is no longer among the living has not dampened my expectations, for I assume you can lay your hands on such a machine and bear it to the site of the tragedy? Perhaps. As consideration, I can offer one thousand English pounds. The Countess presses her son's diary into Jonathan's uncertain grasp. Open his journal to the entry of August the 6th, 1870 and you will find an initial payment of £200, plus a first-class railway ticket that will take you from London to Freiburg to the village of Tubenhausen, and from there to Castle Krelkovnik in the Schwarzwald. May I assume that a week will suffice for you to put your affairs in order? Cracking the spine of the Baron's journal, Jonathan retrieves an envelope containing the promised banknotes and train tickets. I must confess, Countess, I am perplexed by your presumption. He glances toward the grave, noting that the crater is now sealed. The mourners linger beside the mound, 
each locked in contemplations doubtless ranging from cherished memories of Dr. Walmouth to wonderment over who among them will next feel the reaper's scythe to curiosity concerning the location of the nearest public house. Does it not occur to you that I may have better things to do with my time than extirpating your son's transgressions? By way of reply, the Countess produces from her sack a tinted daguerreotype of a young woman. I am not the only one to experience remorse over Gustav's imprudence. My granddaughter Lotta is also in pain, tormented by her failure to warn her father away from his project. Having recently extricated herself from an ill-advised engagement, she is presently in residence at the castle. The thought of meeting the renowned Dr. Hopwright has fired her with an anticipation bordering on exhilaration. Jonathan spends the remainder of the afternoon in the Queen's Lane coffee house, perusing the Baron's confession. Shortly after four o'clock, he finishes reading the last entry, then slams the volume closed. If this fantastic chronicle can be believed, then the evil that Gustav Nagstein perpetrated was of so plenary an intensity as to demand his immediate intervention. He will go to the Black Forest, bearing a tuning fork and collateral voltaic piles. He will redeem the damned souls of Castle Kralkovnik. But even if their plight had not stirred Jonathan, the case would still entail two puissant facts. One thousand pounds is the precise sum by which a competent vibratologist might continue Dr. Walmer's work on a scale befitting its worth, and never in his life has Jonathan beheld a creature so lovely as Fräulein Lotta Nachstein. 15th of March, 1868 After many arduous years of research into the dubious science of spiritualism, I have reached six conclusions concerning so-called ghosts. 1. There is no great beyond, no stable realm, where carefree phantoms gamble while awaiting communiques from turban-topped clairvoyants sitting in candlelit parlours surrounded by the dearly departed's loved ones. Show me a medium and I'll show you a mountebank. Give me a filament of ectoplasm and I'll return a strand of taffy. 2. There is life after death. 3. Once a spectre has elected to vacate its fleshly premises, no ordinary barrier of stone or metal will impede its journey. A willful phantom can easily escape a pharaoh's tomb, a potentate's mausoleum, or a lead casket buried six feet underground. 4. With each passing instant, Yet another quantum of a spectre's incorporeal substance scatters in all directions. Once dissipated, a ghost can never reassemble itself. The post-mortem condition is evanescent in the extreme, not to be envied by anyone possessing an iota of joie de vivre. 5. Despite the radical discontinuity between the two planes, a spectre may, under certain rare circumstances, access the material world prior to total dissolution. Hence the occasional credible account of a ghost performing a boon for the living. A deceased child places her favourite doll on her mother's dresser, 
A departed suitor posts a letter declaring eternal devotion to his beloved. A phantom dog barks one last time, warning his master away from a bridge on the point of collapse. 6. In theory, a competent scientist should be able at the moment of death to encapsulate a person's spectral shade in some spiritually impermeable substance, thus cancelling the dissipation process and creating a kind of immortal soul. The question I intend to explore may be framed as follows. Do the laws of nature permit the synthesis of an alloy so dense as to trap an emergent ghost, yet sufficiently pliant, that the creature will be free to move about? 17th of May, 1868 For the past two months I have not left my laboratory. I am surrounded by the music of science, burbling flasks, bubbling retorts, moaning generators, humming rectifiers. Von Helmholtz, Mendeleev and the rest, my alleged peers, will doubtless aver that my quest partakes more of a discredited alchemy than a tenable chemistry. When I go to publish my results, they'll insist with a sneer I would do better submitting the paper to the proceedings of the Paracelsus Society than to the Cambridge Journal of Molecularism. Let the intellectual midgets have their fun with me. Let the ignoramuses scoff. Where angels fear to tread, Baron Nagstein rushes in. And one day the dead will extol him for it. If all goes well, by this time tomorrow I shall be holding in my hand a lump of the vital material. I intend to call it Bezalelite, in honour of Judah Lerva ben Bezalel the medieval rabbi from Prague, who fashioned a man of clay, giving the creature life by incising on its brow the Hebrew word emeth, that is, truth. Although Judah Loa's golem was a faithful servant and protector of the ghetto, the rabbi was naturally obliged to prevent it from working on the Sabbath, a simple matter of effacing the first letter of emeth, the aleph, leaving mem and tor, characters that spell meth, death. But one fateful Friday evening, Loa forgot to disable his brainchild. In consequence of this inadvertent sacrilege, the golem ran amok all day Saturday, and so, come Sunday, the heart-sick rabbi dutifully ground the thing to dust. I shall not lose control of my golems. From the moment they come into the world, they will know who is the puppet and who the puppeteer, who the beast and who the keeper, who the slave and who the master. 9th July, 1868 At long last, following a deliriously eventful June, I have found time to again take pen in hand. Not only did I fashion the essential alloy, not only did I learn how to produce it in quantities commensurate with my ambitions, but I have managed to coat living tissue with thin and malleable layers of the stuff. Naturally, I first tested the adhesion process on animals. After many false starts and innumerable failures, I managed to electroplate a wasp, a moth, a dragonfly, a frog, a serpent, a tortoise, and a cat. Successfully trapping their spirits has a concomitant suffocation deprived them of their lives. In every case, the challenge was to find an optimum rate at which to replenish the bizarre light anode with fresh quantities of the alloy. 
If I introduce too many positively charged atoms into the bath, then the cathode, that is, the experimental vertebrate or invertebrate, invariably suffered paralysis. Too few such ions, and the chrysalis became so porous as to allow the soul's egress. I was pleased and surprised by how quickly a plated spectre learns to move. Within hours of its emergence from the electrolyte solution, each subject variously flew, hopped, slithered, crawled, or ran, as adeptly as when alive. To the best of my knowledge, a ghost's condition entails only one deficit, because the olfactory sense is actually heightened by the procedure. The creature will undergo a highly unpleasant interval as its former corporeal host decays within the chrysalis. Once decomposition is complete, however, the encapsulated phantom is free to revel in its immortality. Finding an experimental subject of the species Homo sapiens posed no difficulties. Three months ago, my manservant Wolfgang was diagnosed with a cancer of the stomach. His anguish soon proved as unimaginable as the physician's palliatives proved useless. The instant I proposed to sever his tormented soul from his ravaged flesh, he surrendered himself to my science. I shall not soon forget the sight of Wolfgang's glazed body rising from the wooden vat. Eyeless, noseless, mouthless, hairless, the solution had plated all his features, much as an enormous candle burning atop a bust will, drip by drip, sheath the face in wax. In a single deft gesture, I removed the breathing pipe and, taking up a permanent bizarre-like plug, stoppered the ventilation hole, so that death by asphyxiation occurred in a matter of minutes. Even as the waters of Wolfgang's rebirth loosed along his arms and cascaded down his chest, he began teaching his phantom limbs to animate the chrysalis, his phantom eyes to pierce the translucent husk, and so he climbed free of the tar-lined tub without misadventure. The gaslight caught the hardened elixir, causing cold sparks to flash among the bulges and pits. A naive witness happening upon my golem would have taken him for a knight clad in armour fashioned from phosphorescent brass and polished amber. The pain is gone, the ghost reported. Naturally. I replied. I have disembodied you. Henceforth your name is Nonentity 101. I can barely see, he moaned. A necessary and, as you will soon realise, trivial side effect. I feel buried alive. Set me free, Herr Dr. Nachstein. Take heart, Nonentity 101. You are the harbinger of a new and golden race. Welcome to Eden. Before long, hundreds of your kind will inhabit this same garden, arrayed in immortal metal, sneering at oblivion. Let me out. Do not despair. In the present paradise, the lethal tree of knowledge is nowhere to be found. This time around, my dear Adam, you will eat only of the tree of life. The Spartan train that brings Jonathan Hobright eastward from the tiny village of Tubenhausen to the outskirts of Castle Kralkovnik comprises a lone passenger carriage hauled by a decrepit switch engine. Shortly after six o'clock post-meridian, 
he arrives at a forlorn clapboard railway station, terminus of a spur line created solely to service the late Baron Nackstein's estate. As Jonathan wanders about the platform, a thunderstorm arises in the Schwarzwald, the harsh winds flogging his weary flesh. The station offers no refuge, being as tightly sealed as Dr. Walmer's grave, its door secured with a padlock as large as a teapot. For a half hour the vibratologist huddles beneath the drizzling eaves and leaky gutters, until at last a humanoid figure comes shambling through the tempest, gripping a kerosene lantern that imparts a coppery glow to its bizarre light skin. Good evening, Dr. Hobright, the golem says in the voice of a man shouting from within a furnace. Actually, it's a deplorable evening. I am called Nonentity 157. My race, you will hardly be surprised to learn, regards you as the new Moses come to set us free. The ghost heaves a vibratologist's steamer trunk onto his massive shoulders. Judging from its weight, I would surmise that herein lies the mechanism of our deliverance. A thousand ampere Walmouth resonator plus an array of voltaic piles. Nonentity 157 leads Jonathan down the sodden platform and across the glistening tracks. Peering through the gale, the vibratologist discerns a stout and stationary coach hitched to a pair of electroplated horses. Nonentity 157 lofts the steamer trunk atop the roof, securing it with ropes, then opens the door and guides Jonathan into the mercifully dry passenger compartment. Climbing into the driver's box, the golem urges his team forward. By the time the conveyance reaches its destination, the storm has subsided, the curtains of rain parting to reveal a bright gibbous moon. The silver shafts strike Castle Kralkovnik, limning a complex that is less a fortress than a walled hamlet, the whole mass surmounting a hill so bold and craggy as to suggest a skull battered by a mace. The phantom horses trot through a portal flanked by stone gargoyles and began negotiating a labyrinth of cobblestone streets. Golems are everywhere on view, skulking along the puddle-pocked alleys, clanking across the bridges, rumbling through the tunnels, huddling beneath the gothic arches. In this city of the walking dead, every citizen seems to Jonathan a kind of renegade pawn, recently escaped from a tournament whose rules, while ostensibly those of chess, are in fact known only to Lucifer. The coach halts beside the veranda of the main chateau. As Jonathan alights, two golems appear, give their names, and set about simplifying his life. While Nonentity 201 takes charge of the steamer trunk, Nonentity 337 leads the vibratologist upward along the graceful curve of the grand staircase to a private bedchamber. A note rests on the pillow. Countess Nagstein wants him to join her and Lotta for supper at eight o'clock. When the trunk appears, Jonathan changes into dry clothing, a wholly benevolent carapace, he decides, as opposed to the malign husks in which the Baron's progeny are imprisoned. Returning to the first floor, Jonathan employs his olfactory sense, 
his nose is almost as keen as a golem's, in finding the dining hall. The countess and her granddaughter are seated at a ponderous banquet table, drinking Rhenish. Welcome, Dr. Hobgright, the countess says. Do you prefer a white wine or red? Red, please. Will burgundy suffice? Yes, thank you. Owing to the daguerreotype, Lotta Nackstein seems to Jonathan a familiar presence. Like the reputation of a famous personage, her high cheekbones, supple mouth and flashing green eyes have preceded her. Jonathan soon learns, however, that her nature is as harsh as her features are fair. While a cadre of golems serves the dinner, a veritable feast predicated on an entire roast boar, it becomes apparent that gentle words rarely fall from this Fräulein's generous lips. Evidently that I've become something of a legend among your father's experimental subjects, Jonathan says, savouring his wine. They see me as the source of their salvation. My father never regarded the golems as mere experimental subjects, Lotta says in an acerbic tone. If you'd read his journal more carefully, you would have grasped that fact. Nevertheless, his project went beyond the pale. For a man of Gustav Nachstein's genius, there are no pales, Lotta says haughtily. You are not the first prospective saviour to visit us, Dr. Hobright. In recent months, my grandmother and I have consulted with experts from all over England and the continent. Every imaginable remedy has been tried and found wanting. Acids, chisels, hacksaws, steam drills, welding torches, explosives. But Dr. Hobright is our first vibratologist, the Countess reminds Lotta. Then turns to Jonathan and says, My granddaughter and I believe that the right sort of specialist has finally come to Castle Krolkovnik. Speak for yourself, mother, Lotta says. You were convinced that Dr. Polifax's silver bullets would free the golems. Likewise, Dr. Edelman's caustic butter, not to mention your misplaced faith in Dr. Callistratus, who wasted six days attempting to deplate the cat. Jonathan helps himself to a second glass of Burgundy. Might I presume to ask how Baron Nachstein met his end? Violently, Lotta says. His creatures assassinated him, the Countess says with equal candour. The details are unpleasant. My father died even more horribly than my mother, who suffered a fatal hemorrhage giving birth to me, Lotta says. Just as the Baroness Nackstein's fertility destroyed her, so did Baron Nackstein's brilliance occasion his downfall. Your father was extraordinarily gifted, but his journal also reveals a man obsessed, Jonathan says. Lotta sips her Rhenish and glowers at the vibratologist. It's the golems who are obsessed, incapable of seeing beyond their idée fixée about damnation. I ask you, Dr. Hobright, does not the fact that they decline to plate my father argue for the fundamental benevolence of the procedure? If their condition is as intolerable as they maintain, they would have logically inflicted it on their creator, instead of simply murdering him. In that case, perhaps I should return to Oxford. Jonathan says, sensing that in defending the Baron so vociferously, Lotta has overstepped the bounds of her actual beliefs. Given that your father's creatures are such incurable dissemblers, I see no point in helping them. 
No, please, you must stay, Lotta insists. Perhaps my father was mistaken. If the golems say their situation is unendurable, it behooves us to give them the benefit of the doubt. 13th of January, 1869 Nonentity 157 and his Bizarre-like brethren are adamant on one point. They insist that a wandering soul's burning need is to venture forth from its cadaverous habitat and dissipate, occasionally favouring its survivors with a benevolent gesture en passant. By tampering with this process, I have plunged the golems into an irreparable despair. Indeed, I have dispatched them to hell. My instincts tell me to ignore these complaints. Creatures in such a metaphysically unprecedented state are wont to indulge in hyperbole. Like the vast majority of sentient beings, my golems are unreliable narrators of their own lives. As it happens, their illusion of damnation is useful to my purposes. By promising to return them to the electrolyte bath any day now, subsequently reversing the plating process and dissolving their husks, I retain a remarkable measure of control over their minds. I cannot speak for the whole of creation. But here, in the Schwarzwald, law and order enjoy a proper degree of hegemony over anarchy and chaos. Judging from my latest series of animal experiments, I would have to say that, alas, bizarre plating can occur in one direction only. I would do well to sequester that unhappy fact in the pages of this journal. Were the golems to comprehend the immutability of their situation, they would suffer unnecessary distress. To date, I have brought forth 113 electroplated souls, most of them terminal consumptives and cancer patients from Freiburg, Fortheim, Reutlingen and Stuttgart. With each such parturition, I come closer to perfecting my methods. To help maintain a constant iron level, I have learned to add potassium cyanide to the bath, along with salt of the bizarre light itself. Conductivity can be further enhanced with carbonates and phosphates. As it happens, if the golem maker first deposits a layer of pure silver on the subject's epidermis, no more than one-tenth of a micrometer thick, total adhesion of the alloy to the protein substrate is virtually guaranteed. Finally, if the experimenter wishes to hasten the process by means of high current densities, he should employ pulse plating, prevent erratic deposition rates. In the case of human subjects, the ideal cycle is 15 seconds on, followed by 3 seconds off. To ensure a wholly homogeneous chrysalis, the golem maker will want to vary the direction of the electricity flowing from the rectifier. In density, the reverse pulse should exceed the forward pulse by a factor of 4, while the width of the forward pulse must be 3 times that of the reverse. 6th of August, 1870 I must confess, though with a certain understandable reluctance, that I have found in the Franco-Prussian War a catastrophe of enormous convenience. Approach a man who has just been blown apart by an artillery shell, his viscera spilling forth like turnips from a torn sack, and propose to translate him into a domain where his agony will vanish and his soul endure forever, and he will invariably assent. 
if you kneel beside a soldier recently trampled during a cavalry charge and offer to sign him up for an eternity of painless existence, he will forthwith beg for a contract and a pen. This afternoon, my creatures and I landed in the Alsatian town of Frochvilla, where earlier in the day, Marshal Patrice de Marmarhan's French brigades had clashed with a combined force of Prussians, Bavarians, Badeners, Württembergans and Saxons. Perhaps historians will ultimately frame the Battle of Froschwiller as the cradle of a unified German state, but what I beheld on that ghastly field was not so much a cradle as a mass grave. Each side, I would estimate, lost at least 10,000 men to instant death or irremediable wounds. Crossing the bloody terrain with a large convoy of tumbrils, the golems collected over 500 candidates for Bizarre-like immortality. Thanks to humankind's affection for mayhem, I shall soon have an army of my own. 3rd October 1870 Immediately after the necessary plans and diagrams arrived from Prague, along with a team of mastered builders, I embarked on a colossal endeavour. Here, in the heart of the Schwarzwald, we have raised my ancestral manor and begun to assemble in its stead a structure of stupefying splendour. My new abode will replicate the bohemian castle of Kralkovnik, wall for wall, gate for gate, lane for lane, arch for arch and vault for vault. Among their many virtues, my golems are extraordinarily diligent labourers. Already the first, second and third courtyards have been paved. Tomorrow, a crew of 350 will start erecting Polsig Tower, even as the remaining 725 lay the foundations of the principal chateau. A man's home, it has been remarked, is his castle. By analogy, a man's castle is his kingdom, and his kingdom his empire. I intend to administer my dominion in a manner befitting the first scientist to weld the carnal plane to its spectral counterpart. That is, with a firm but enlightened hand. As Lotta told me this morning, when the golems undertake to compose their epics, they will sing their creator's praises in rapturous words, borne by the most sublime music yet heard in heaven or on earth. At first light, Jonathan Hopright rises from his canopy bed and, venturing beyond the castle walls, begins his quest for a suitable site on which to stage the golem's salvation. From seven o'clock until noon, he roams the fields and woods, eventually happening upon a clearing so wide it could accommodate a circus act featuring a troop of elephants. The vibratologist returns to the castle, seeks out Nonentity 157, and enlists its aid in transporting the apparatus to the place where, God willing, he will redeem the Baron's creatures. After Nonentity 157 departs, Jonathan bears the Walmouth resonator to the centre of the circle. Coils of fog sinuate across the ground like phantom serpents. Meticulously, he deploys the tuning fork, prongs pointed upwards in a configuration evoking the devil's own trident, bursting through the crust of the earth. Next, he places the voltaic piles a full hundred yards from the resonator, fearing that without this margin the vibrations will shatter not only the bizarre light husks, but the battery array itself, thus 
terminating the golem's deliverance in Medias Res. At this juncture, Countess Nagstein's icily beautiful granddaughter appears, dressed in a bright scarlet cloak, so that her emergence from the fog suggests the red death exiting a white tent. In the moist but congenial glow of morning, Lotta seems a rather different person from the high-minded moralist who dominated the previous night's dinner conversation, and she addresses Jonathan in tones that betray genuine contrition. Please accept this lunch, along with my apology for scolding you last night, she says, handing over a sack containing, Jonathan is gratified to see, cold meat, warm bread, two apples, and a flask of burgundy. My father did monstrous things. I would deny that fact only at my peril. In most contexts, honouring one's parents is a laudable endeavour. I cannot blame you for defending Baron Nagstein, injudicious as his project might have been. The man who would expiate my father's sins is not only a great scientist, but a paragon of graciousness. When Lotta squeezes Jonathan's arm and suggests that she help him finish installing the resonator, he can discern no ulterior motive. During the subsequent hour, they connect a long, rubber-sheathed wire to the positive terminals of the voltaic piles, then attach a second such strand to the negative terminals, subsequently running the insulated copper filaments to the fork and wrapping them around the outer prongs. Returning to the piles, Jonathan fastens the wires to a pair of chronometers, the first enabling him to determine how many minutes will elapse before the blade of the concomitant knife switch descends, the second allowing him to fix the interval between the initial vibrations and the termination of the circuit. I see no reason not to move quickly, Lotta says. Suddenly her imperious aspect is ascendant. It seems she has taken command of the experiment, a situation to which Jonathan is expected to acquiesce. We shall switch on the resonator at three o'clock. Is that acceptable to you? What if it were unacceptable? Lotta makes no reply, but instead points to the rheostat. I assume that, given Bazalalite's extreme density, we should run the apparatus for at least an hour, and at full power. I would advise against it. To drive a Walmouth resonator beyond 800 amperes would be to create an acoustic cyclone. My preferred parameters would be 400 amperes for 20 minutes. We shall compromise, Lotta informs Jonathan. 600 amperes for 40 minutes. After setting the chronometers, we shall retreat to the safety of the castle. We needn't worry about the golem's welfare. After all, they're already dead. 3rd November, 1877. When I embarked on this project, I fully anticipated the delight I would derive from observing the golems prepare our meals, make our beds, brew our beer, plough our fields and harvest our crops but I had no inkling of the satisfactions to be had in commanding them to engage in meaningless tasks. Come to Castle Kralkovnik, ladies and gentlemen. Behold the living dead playing polo in the moonlight, using pumpkins instead of balls. Watch the tethered spirits build a tower to heaven on an inviolable order from Yahweh, then tear it down in response to an equally sacrosanct command. Bear witness to my metal phantoms as they plan and rehearse nine separate productions of Macbeth, 
each to unfold five seconds out of phase with both its antecedent and its successor, then stage multiple command performances for their favourite baron. On the whole, it is wrong for a person to spawn a race of artificial beings and demand their unquestioning obedience. Godhead too easily goes to one's head. From time to time, however, the world is blessed with an individual so wise that he may play the part of locally situated deity without any attendant corruption to his character. 12th of February, 1878 Last month I made a momentous discovery. No matter how much he may be adored, worshipped and feared, a man in my position will not be satisfied until his progeny come to blows over how best to interpret their creator's will. We demiurges cannot rest until a great quantity of violence has occurred on our behalf. If I am to enjoy genuine peace of mind, my adherents must go to war. In keeping with the scenario I wrote for them, the orthodox golems, the singularists led by Nanentity 741, believe in a unitary deity. The quadripartists, under Nanentity 899, insist that I am of a piece with a pantheon that includes my mother Helga, my daughter Lotta, and my alter ego, Rabbi Judah ben Bezalo. Both sides employ incineration as their principal method for punishing incorrect understandings of my unknowable essence. Once a heretic has been tried and convicted, he is chained to a stake, engulfed by mounds of kindling, and put to the torch. Of course, unlike most victims of religious persecution, singularist and quadripartist heretics actually wish to be treated in this brutal fashion for they imagine that the flames might prove hot enough to melt their shells. A physical impossibility. But desperate spectres will not be reconciled to the laws of nature. This same expectation of deliverance undergirds the theological wars that periodically ravage the Schwarzwald. The sight of a thousand golems falling upon one another with claymores, cudgels and battle-axes is as exhilarating a spectacle as a deity could ever hope to witness. Needless to say, the carapaces always remain intact. Like the golems themselves, my bizarre light is essentially a supernatural phenomenon, impervious to the ambitions of the quick and the desires of the dead. 12th of August, 1879 Today I endured one of the most distressing events of my life. Shortly after an entity 316, and an entity 214 appeared at the breakfast table, the former serving my morning eggs and sausage, the latter bringing me my newspaper, non-entity 667 strode into the dining hall, looming over me while I attempted to read an article detailing how the spiritualism fad has come to Vienna. You are blocking my light, I told the golem. Rather the way you have occluded our enlightenment. Non-Entity 667 replied, We have read your journal, Herr Dr. Nachstein. You have deceived us. The procedure cannot be undone. Nonsense, you have misinterpreted the entry in question. I now have in hand the knowledge by which you will transcend your alloys. Allow me two more experiments, three at the most, and I shall bless you all with oblivion. 
Perhaps we shall exact our retribution tomorrow, perhaps the next day, perhaps a year from now. But know that our vengeance is coming. You cannot frighten me, I said, though in truth I was terrified. For singularists and quadripartists alike, I am the only possible source of salvation. Fiat justitia ruet calum, non entity 667 said. Let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. Heavy of heart, unquiet of mind, Jonathan paces Castle Kralkovnik's highest point, the roof of Pulsig Tower. His path is an ellipse, its eastern focus marked by Countess Schnackstein, the western by Lotta, the centre by a telescope pointing towards the clearing. He wishes he had not assented to Lotta's insistence on running the resonator at 600 amperes. Conceivably, her directive sprang from some intuitive insight into her father's recondite alloy. But more likely it bespoke only a mania to cleanse his legacy. Pausing before the telescope, Jonathan presses his right orb to the eyepiece. He adjusts the tubes, making the image crisp. The golems stand in three concentric circles around the tuning fork, a tableau suggesting a tossed pebble raising rings in a pond. A palpable serenity has descended upon the creatures. They are patience personified. Having waited so many years for their freedom, they can endure whatever interval remains before the blade drops. One month after they stole my father's journal and learned that the plating is seemingly permanent, Lotta says. A mob of golems, two dozen at least, appropriated every dagger, hatchet and sword in the castle. With military precision, most of them were soldiers. They disassembled my son, the Countess says. Each put away a different piece of him and buried it in the forest. It speaks well of your Christian generosity that you would seek to liberate the Baron's murderers, Jonathan says, stepping away from the telescope. Our project has less to do with compassion than with self-preservation, the Countess replies. Upon consummating their plot against Gustav, the golems gave Lotta and myself to know that their next victims would be we ourselves. Only after it became clear that we were taking every conceivable step to free them, hiring one metallurgist, galvanicist and molecularist after another, did they become as compliant as when my son first brought them into being. A white-hot bead of anger burns through Jonathan's breast. If the present experiment fails, he will surely become entangled in whatever lethal designs the golems draw against Lotta and the Countess. How dare these women presume to put him in such jeopardy? But before he can articulate his fury, he hears the sharp electric report of the chronometer blade snapping into place. Jonathan again avails himself of the telescope. Already the trident had become a humming, wailing, incandescent blur, each prong oscillating like the pendulum of some demonic inverted clock. At the edge of the circle, poplars and beeches shiver in the oral storm. The trunks fracture, and the trees crash to the forest floor, even as scores of owls, rooks, larks, foxes, hares, hedgehogs and deer flee the cataclysm. On all sides of the resonator, jagged crevasses open in the earth. So great is the pain in Jonathan's head 
that he abandons the telescope, shuts his eyes and massages his throbbing temples. His tendons tremble like harp strings plucked by invisible hands. Were the tower nearer to the fork by as few as ten yards, he calculates. His eardrums would rip, his heart burst, and his skeleton turned to powder. Fighting his way through the crashing waves of sound, Jonathan returns to the telescope. Everywhere he looks, fault lines zigzag across the golem's metal flesh. Their faceless heads resemble ancient vases, cracked and battered by history's vicissitudes. Like an ancient mosaic shedding its tiles, the creatures molt, bit by bit. Bizarre-like fragments drop from their phantom arms, legs and torsos, revealing the mouldering bones beneath. Momentarily mastering his fear and transcending his astonishment, Jonathan takes satisfaction in knowing that, given the intensity of the tremors, the fork is probably freeing not only the human golems, but also the Baron's experimental insects, reptiles and mammals. Mirabile dictu, the Countess cries. The spectres are hatching, Lotta shouts. It's not safe here, Jonathan screams, urging the women toward the stairwell. Run! Despite her advanced age, the Countess manages to negotiate the steps two at a time, as do Jonathan and Lotta, so that everyone reaches the ground floor within three minutes. No sooner does Jonathan start charging down the corridor than the ceiling disintegrates, squalls of plaster cascading into his path. Frantically, he sidles and weaves amidst the plummeting timbers and errant chunks of masonry, but his athleticism proves useless before the force he has unleashed. As he reaches the door to the conservatory, a wayward chandelier, luminous with gas, lands squarely atop his skull. The bright bludgeon plunges him into darkness, but not before he notices that the hall now swarms with a thousand phantoms, each a disquieting shade of red, and all wearing strangely despondent expressions, utterly unbefitting of persons recently released from the bottomless pit. At first, Jonathan assumes that he has fallen prey to a nightmare. How else might he explain the scene now stretching before him? Heaped with kindling, two wooden obelisks rise from the central courtyard, each holding a Nuckstein woman, bound, gagged, and blindfolded. The plaque above Lotta's head reads, Singularist. Countess Nuckstein's stake is labelled Quadripartist. The phantoms have immobilised Jonathan as well, cuffing his wrists with manacles, hobbling his feet with fetters, and they have additionally stripped away his clothing. The vibratologist shivers in the Schwarzwald wind, goosebumps erupting on his bare skin like rivets, even as his cranium aches with the aftermath of his encounter with the chandelier. Vapour-faced phantoms throng across the plaza, their visages twisted by an inscrutable sadness. As if ignorant of the laws of actuality, the former golems attempt to prolong their purchase on the world. They flex their non-muscles, tense their non-ligaments, curl their non-fingers. Surely you don't mean to burn these women, Jonathan says. They rescued you. You owe them everything. We mean to burn them as surely as we mean to electroplate you. 
says a crimson spectre in a fluttering voice. That makes no sense. True, says a scarlet spectre. We understand your frustration. You want your ghosts to be outré but not perverse, weird but not recondite, occasionally sublime though never ridiculous. So sorry, Herr Doctor. We are avatars of the abyss. Coherence is not our business. Jonathan watches helplessly, as a vermilion ghost applies a firebrand to the faggots encircling the Countess's stake. As the flames climb the fleshly ladder of the victim's form, a carmine spectre flourishes a Walmouth resonator. The very fork, Jonathan realises, that gave the golems their freedom, and hurls it into the burgeoning conflagration. The dead don't lack for foresight, a maroon ghost avers. In a matter of minutes the fork will become a charred ruin, thus cancelling any hopes you might entertain of liberation by a passing Samaritan. Now, a ruby spectre sets Lotta's pyre aflame, but not before jamming the Baron's journal into the faggots. Set her free! Jonathan screams. A band of phantoms drags the vibratologist out of the plaza and down a maze of stairways to the Baron's subterranean laboratory, a cavernous space dominated by the electrolyte vat. Although they've never done this before, his captors act with great efficiency, ramming a respiration tube down his throat, dumping him into the solution, chaining his naked body to the cathode column. Ignoring his pleas for mercy, a magenta spectre connects the rectifier to the anode, agleam with the baron's alloy. Countless positively charged bizarre-like atoms drift through the bath and accumulate on Jonathan's flesh, atom by atom, molecule by molecule. The metal embraces the helpless vibratologist, each instance of adherence like the sting of a microscopic hornet. Within one hour the process is complete, leaving him encapsulated, immobile, and half-blind. A gurgling reaches his ears. The phantoms are draining the vat. A searing pain rips through his chest as a ghost yanks the respiration tube from his trachea. An instant later... Another spectre seals the air hole with an immortal bizarre-like plug. Mummified by the exotic alloy, the prisoner is soon deprived of oxygen and then of life itself. He is also deprived of death. Now and forever, he will be the ghost of Jonathan Hobright. Vibratologist extraordinaire becomes solitary golem chained to the cathode pillar of Baron Nackstein's infernal machine. Someday, perhaps, when entropy has dismantled the universe, he will be a free man. But for now he must reconcile himself to the unendurable, the interminable, and the endlessly absurd. Jonathan Hobright cannot discourse upon the formic thoughts that flicker through the minds of ants and he is similarly ignorant concerning the psyches of locusts, toads, moles, apes, and bishops. But he can tell you what it's like to be in hell. 
his imagination affords him only fleeting respites. Each time he dreams himself free of his bizarre light coffin, passing through the portals of the abyss, striking out for terra incognita, Satan's angels give chase, and they inevitably track him down. Come back, Dr. Hobright. Return to perdition. Tell your story for the tenth time, the hundredth, the thousandth. The more frequently you give voice to the wretched chronicle of your life, death, and damnation, the more likely you are to stumble upon hope's hidden wellspring. And until that improbable miracle occurs, you might take heart in recalling that the progenitor of your race is dead and gone. In the eons to come, you will not be made to Lord Gustav Nachstein in song, or build an altar to his glory. Cold comfort, to be sure, but in the bottomless pit one seizes upon whatever consolations lie to hand. Against the odds, and in defiance of his circumstances, Jonathan Hobwright's most recent recitation yields the very fount of hope he seeks. According to the Baron's confession, on certain rare occasions, despite the essential incompatibility between the human plane and the spectral, a disintegrating ghost will perform a philanthropic act. And so it happens that, when a fresh barrage of vibrations assaults Castle Krelkovnik, roaring through the Baron's laboratory like a tornado, reducing the walls to rubble as it cracks the prisoner's chrysalis, Jonathan is not entirely surprised. Sloughing off his husk, abandoning his corpse, the vibratologist floats free of the cathode, then fixes on Lotta's crimson ghost. How long was I entombed? he asks. Ten days, she replies. It felt like forever. Hell knows nothing of clocks. Where did you obtain the fork? Jonathan asks. From Alistair Volmeth, Countess Nackstein's scarlet spectre replies. The task we set ourselves was gruelling. In our given tenure, Lutter and I had to reach Oxford, unseal the grave, open the coffin, steal the resonator, and return to the castle. I am deeply grateful. We have no need of your gratitude, the Countess says. Nor do you have need of ours. And now we must take eternal leave of you, Lotta says as her misty form dissolves. Oblivion beckons. Farewell, Dr. Hopwright. The Countess has become as transparent as the surrounding air. Please know that it was never my intention to occasion your death. It suddenly occurs to Jonathan that he desperately wants to enlighten humanity concerning the destiny of the dead. So tenuous is the spectral plane, so ultimately meaningless, he must share this knowledge with his former fleshly confederates. The Baron's journal having been reduced to specks of carbon, Jonathan alone can tell the world about the appalling insipidity of ghosts. I wish to perform a philanthropic act of my own, he declares. What do you have in mind? The invisible Lotta asks. Even as the answer forms on Jonathan's airy lips, he realises that his aspiration is futile. 
There is no time to find a pen, an inkpot, a sheet of paper. Already he is less than ashes. Already he is a brother to dust. Wrenching sobs burst from the vibratologist's ethereal throat. Briny droplets roll down his ephemeral cheeks. For an infinitesimal instant, Jonathan Hobright is seized by an infinite remorse. But then his sorrow evaporates. Like rain. Like dew. Like sweat. Like the last and least of his tears. There you go. Big thank you to James as well. That's just fantastic. James, and it's lovely to have a chat with you as well. <laughs> I'd actually recorded that interview last night. This is Wednesday today. And I sent an email to James within the hour. Do you know what I mean? That's all we had. We had this kind of little window to do this interview. And it was like, James, what's the chance you can do an interview in an hour? And, you know, thank James, what can I say? Thank you so much. He was having a rush off the babysitter's twins, as you heard in the interview. So thank you. That story was narrated by Catherine Inskip. And I met Catherine down at Worldcon. Catherine and a good man, Jeremy, were down there. We were at the bar as well. And I didn't realise how good, or I forgot, should I say, how good Catherine's narrating is. Do you know what I mean? It just takes you to another level. And the, the neat thing is, and it's not a neat thing for a kind of a narrator, James' James's stories are very difficult. When you just listen to them, do you know what I mean? When you kind of read them, you know, the words he's playing with there to kind of get the story over in his style, they aren't easy to narrate, you know what I mean? That was kind of, say, one being an easy narrate, ten being a hard one, that one was a, that was eleven, that was a difficult story to narrate, and Catherine's just took that story and just took us straight in, honestly, straight into that world of, of James's. So Catherine, a big thank you to that. I'll just give you a little bio. Catherine, it weighs galaxies for a living and builds worlds in a spare time. She is addicted to chocolate and Japanese logic puzzles. And she does, she weighs galaxies. That's a great little description. Catherine is an astronomer. And like I say, we were down at Worldcon where I first met them. And actually, oh, she's not on the actual photograph. There's a kind of a group selfie where we get together. I don't think Catherine's on. I know our man Jeremy's there in the back on this kind of selfie we did, but we met, like, say, Catherine down at Worldcon. It was lovely just to meet them, you know what I mean? Just to kind of sit and have a little, oh, as you do, a drink, you know. And Catherine, what can I say? That was a fine narration. And, yes, we will be pestering you forever and a day now. Thank you so much. And, Jeremy, I can't, you know, without saying the production on that quality was just fantastic. You know what I mean? That would I guess there was a few mistakes just trying to get it, you know, edited down there. And you did a sterling job, sir. Thank you so much, both of you. So that is Starship Sova 354. I had to wait last click the box there to find out what number I forgot. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, GM's Morrow is a, just a fantastic story writer. Do you know, I'll put links on there. Please come over and try and get them back on when his you know new story comes out and again if you want to support the show back to the, the basics like the business side of things please we could do with all the help we we can do you know what i mean unfortunately we're gonna to have to lose and it's only a matter of weeks before we can I, I, i've got this big button here you hear it 
that's the big button that has to switch off Crime City Central and Protecting Project Pulp, which is just gut-wrenching, to be quite honest. But these things are, these things happen, so please support the show. Hopefully, in a week or so's time, I will have some fantastic news, which will, you know, hopefully help the show and all stuff like that, if you just get behind with So, until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.